You're listening to Kitchen Table Finance. Join Dave Shotwell and Nick Nauta as they cut through the complexity of financial planning and serve bites of investment advice that are both personal and practical. Hey, Dave, how are you doing today? Not bad, Nick. How are you? Good. Sun is shining, so it must be time to uh, do a podcast, right? I saw the sun for 10 or 15 minutes earlier, so we'll call it good. <laughs> we'll call but it all good. you get up there this time. That's right. Anyways, right? <laughs> That's right. So uh, interesting topic today, Dave. So let's just dive right in. And that is when it comes to planning and retirement planning, what are your key numbers? And also, how often should you review them? Feels like, and especially in today's world, there's a lot of different numbers out there. There's a lot of different yeah. things that you can stress about. And so I think it's twofold for today, right? Like what are those things that are actually important? Right. Uh, might surprise you, probably not what you think. And number two, how often should you look at them? Do you need to be, you know, reviewing these things daily or, you know, what, what's best practices for not driving yourself crazy, right? Right. And that's kind of where this topic came from, right? Is we, we, we've spent a few minutes on the air over the last couple of months, you know, reminding people that they shouldn't be obsessing over their portfolio and mm-hmm. checking it constantly and driving themselves crazy. And we've talked about the statistics about how people tend to actually do worse the more often they check on things because they make irrational or emotional decisions, I should say, yep. not necessarily mm-hmm. irrational. But uh, so it just kind of begs the question, right? What should we look at and how often should we be looking? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we've kind of talked about it quite a bit, but we don't, paying attention to the market isn't really going to do anything for you. <laughs> right? It's, we, I kind of feel like we're at cross purposes as advisors sometimes. I never want a client to feel like they can't know how they're doing, right? Right. They shouldn't, I'm not going to withhold information from them, but there's a lot of times when it's just like, you know, really we should put you back on annual statements and just, you know, (laughs) uh, just, just don't look at this for right now because I don't want you to stress about it because there's nothing you, A, there's nothing you can do about it that time won't take care of. Right. And, you know, it's more likely to cause you to make mistakes. Yeah. And we need to develop some sort of app that like after so many logins <laughs> says, you don't need to see this yep, right now. You're done. <laughs> go take a, go take a deep you're breath. <laughs> I see. Yeah. You know, and, and, and yeah, professional ethics come into play there a little bit. And I'm, right. I'm not sure the SEC would be real happy with that response, <laughs> yeah. but the behavioral finance folks would be like, yeah, that's right. spot on, right? <laughs> so, all right. So what is a healthy approach? What should people be looking at? You know, I think we we like to talk at least on a high level about talk about the behaviors that drive mm-hmm. success, right? Absolutely. The things you can control. Oh, yeah. That's such a big thing, right? Like no matter how many times you look at the market, you, you, there's nothing you can control or change. And so right. by focusing on the things and the behaviors that you should be doing, you can actually drive meaningful change, especially right. over a longer period of the time, right? Right. The number one driver of building wealth is your savings rate. Yep. Should be, you know, the number one number that everybody should probably know is, you know, as you're gearing up to retire is, what, you know, how much are you saving? What's that percentage yeah. of yeah. income that is going into long-term savings? Right. Because the market will take care of itself. Mm-hmm. And 
if you are just consistently doing the right thing and putting money away, you'll get there. And that, you know, again, is a behavior thing and, and a couple things on savings rate, right? Like, you know, ultimately it is important. We have kind of a general range that we usually want people to be in, but it's general because it's different mm-hmm. for different goals, right? Like if you right. came in and you wanted to retire at 50, you're going to have to have a higher savings rate right. than somebody that wants to retire at 67. And both of those are okay. You know, it's not a measuring stick to say, well, yeah. you know, my neighbor's saving 30% a year. So I want to do that, even though, you know, maybe you don't ever want to retire. You want to retire <laughs> later rather than earlier, right? <laughs> yeah. I remember going around and around early on, like middle of, middle of my career when I had just made the switch over to like project more planning focused than investment focused and a younger engineer type wanting not just to, like he wanted to be benchmarked against his peers mm. and mm-hmm. you know which which I I understand but I spent a lot of time trying to explain to him how you know his peers weren't necessarily what he thought they were in terms of what he should be measuring himself against because his right. goals were or I don't remember what they specifically were, but it was like, we need to like take a subset of your peers that have the same goals as you and good luck figuring out who that is, you know? Right. But anyway, that's a, that's a different conversation, but everything's relative. You know, even your closest peers, you may not, you know, want to measure up again because they might have diff- completely different goals, right? So it's, it's more about you than it is about somebody else. So it's a dangerous game that you can start playing. You know, obviously savings rate is the percentage of income that you're saving for long-term goals. Now I, I say long-term goals because not, you know, maybe it's, you know, maybe retirement isn't your number one goal, right? Maybe you mm-hmm. want to do provide college education for your kids before retirement. So it's mm-hmm. kind of a combination of both of those things. It doesn't necessarily just mean retirement. Um, but I think in in kind of the best way to start focusing on this is figuring out where you're at. And also, if you're not where you're at, how do you improve? And right. that starts with a budget. A budget. <laughs> a budget. We can't get away from that, can we? So right. yeah, you know, you want to you wanna look at like... Like if we get granular on savings rate, start with um, like, are you on a monthly basis? Are your, is your budget balanced? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. start with that. Because if it's not, it doesn't matter what the market did tomorrow or do, it does tomorrow, what it did tomorrow. It doesn't matter what the market does tomorrow. It doesn't matter what the market does six months from now or six years from now. If your budget's not balanced and you're accumulating debt instead of savings, what difference yeah. does it make? Right. Especially if, you know, you're paying 25% on credit card debt. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's not a winning, uh, that's not a winning equation compared to what you could do with uh, putting money in long-term investments in retirement. So, and the other thing that I would think of, you know, obviously of of getting that budget and and figuring out what your long-term savings rate goal should be, but also, you know, not having, not thinking about, okay, well, I need to be at 20 and I'm at 10. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's a big hill to climb. It's not like you have to be at 20 tomorrow, right? Like what are some of the steps that you can do? How do you get a little bit closer every year until you get to that point? I think is huge, right? What's the best way to eat an elephant? (laughs) One bite at a time, right? (laughs) Yeah, I I, I hate the gory pictures that brings to mind. But I think think like one of our favorite uh, financial planning writers is Carl Richards. And he says, you know, just Mm -hmm. find that one that one small thing you can do right now, 
right? And do that yeah. and then figure out what the next thing is. And if that's yeah. increasing, if all you can do is increase your savings rate by 1% right now into your 401k or whatever, go do that thing and then figure out where the next 1% is going to come from. I love telling people too, especially when it comes to savings rate, tied into your you know annual cost of living adjustment, right? So if you get a 5% raise, you put one in, you're still making more money. It still shows up as more in your paycheck, but you never knew that that 1% is now in your you know, long-term savings goal. So a couple of other elements that are important or a couple of other rates, numbers that are important. One of those is debt rate. So your debt rate, much like your savings rate, is just tallying up how much your you know, monthly debt repayments are and dividing that by your total income, right? So that should be your debt rate. And to give you some sort of idea of where that should be, you know, it, it, it's a different for everybody. It's different for all kind of stages of where you're at, right? But just kind of a general you know, overall average looking at people, if you're over, if you're 40% or over, that's definitely on the high side. Um, mm-hmm. One of the first things that we'd probably look at working on is how do we get that number lower if you are sitting down a front in front of us with a 40% or more debt rate. Um, most people are on average are around the 20 to 30% is a, you know, relatively healthy debt rate, especially depending on when you're, you know, having those conversations, right? right? And then low would be the ten to fifteen percent range, and and that's an important uh, an important thing that comes into play if you're looking to buy a house. Oh yeah, um, mm-hmm. one of the one of the metrics the bank's going to want to use to determine how big a mortgage they'll uh, yep. they'll let you have. So, which is interesting, and I always tell people this: you know, the bank will try to do anything to <laughs> to get you into a big house. So, like, they're not afraid to go over that forty percent. No, you probably no. should be right. 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 <laughs> Right. If they um, so are, you need to think about things. And I think too, you know, obviously the closer you get to retirement, more the lower your debt rate should potentially be, right? Like you right. probably don't want to hit that retirement mark and still have a 40% uh, right. debt rate. When you're looking at your metrics, you want to increase your savings rate. You want to decrease your debt rate. Talk to me about total term. I like this one too. Yeah. So total term is your, basically, if you take your net worth and divide it by your spending, right? So how much you spend on an annual basis, that Mm -hmm. should give you your total term, right? And it's kind of this idea of, it's the number that we use to tell people, this is your make work optional. Bucket, mm-hmm. right? Like if you get this number high enough, right? So if you have a total term of say, you know, 25, that essentially means you could live off your net worth for the next 25 years without having, you know, without factoring in anything like interest yeah. rate adjusts or excuse me, interest rate on your portfolio, you know, market gains, things like that. Just yeah. thinking of it in terms of net worth divided by yeah. your spending rate. So obviously yeah. the higher that number is, the more, you know, work is optional for you. Mm-hmm. And the goal is to increase that over time, right? So when you're in the 25 to 35 range, it's pretty normal to have a total term of you know five or less, right? Like you're just mm-hmm. building that net worth. You've got a lot of stuff going on. The closer you get to retirement and what you want your retirement age to be, that number should be higher to you know have so you have a net worth that's capable of producing the income that you need. So you don't have to have work. Yeah. And the interesting thing about it too is, you know, those two things that we just talked about, your savings rate and your debt rate, 
you know, if you can increase your savings rate and decrease your debt rate, your total term is by default going to start going gonna up. Go up. All right. Right. Those are the right. behaviors that you work on. And the outcome is what happens to your total term. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it, that that's where you'll see the you'll see the success by that total term rising. I, I like to say, you know, this is your, you know, make work optional because again, not everybody wants to retire, um, but most mm-hmm. people want to be in a position to that they can if they want to, but they can choose to continue to. So it's just another unique way of looking at that because everybody's experiences and everybody's goals are a little bit different. The other one that is also important, and this kind of relates to, you know, we already talked about budgets, but now we get to talk about emergency funds, right? And that is your liquid term. So the same concept, except for instead of using your net worth, we're using your liquid reserves, cash or things that are available to you. And we're dividing that by your savings rate. So for example, if you have a score, a liquid term score of one, that means you have enough in liquid available investments, savings, cash that you could cover one year worth of expenses, Mm -hmm. right? And so that number, obviously, like we've talked about several times as far as contingency emergency funds go, right? We want to be at at least a minimum of three to six months, right? So Mm -hmm. 0.3 to a... 0.5 on liquid term, but it will also depend on where you're at in life as well, right? Or if you have major purchases or things that are coming up. So, you know, you may have a higher liquid term if you're planning on buying a house next year um, and want a big down payment because, you know, you don't want to invest that or you don't want that money tied up. Yeah, you should actually like mentally segregate that uh, down payment money from your liquid assets when you do the math for this. So you're not... uh, right creating a false sense of uh, yeah, right. liquid term security. Yeah. I like yeah. that though. But and also, you know, where you're at career-wise, right? When you're younger, it's going to be probably lower because you got other things going on, but as you, you know, progress, you're probably going to have a higher liquid term score. Also your family size, right? Like, you know, more more people involved, more people dependent on your income probably the higher you want that score. Mm -hmm. And then also, you know, income variability, right? So I've got people who carry a pretty high liquid term score, but they also, on a year-over-year basis, they're not sure exactly how much they're going to make, right? And if if that varies widely from year to year, you need more money in in liquidity so that you have the ability to supplement your income. So if you're used to making 250 and you have a year where you only make 150, you're going to want a bigger liquid term score than someone who has got a guaranteed 175 every year with very yeah. low potential for that to go away yeah. or move up or down. Yeah. yeah. So just some things to think about, right? Like everybody's scorecard is a little bit different and you have to evaluate it in different ways. But mm-hmm. just thinking about those three things, I think it's important to know what those numbers are and assess where you want them to be and then make the decisions and make the hard choices of how to improve those or keep them where they're at, if that's where you're at. So we've spent, what, 15 minutes on this so far, and we haven't talked about once logging into your 401k or your custodian for your investment account, right? Yeah. Yeah. Our take on that is really... I guess the way, the way I put it to people is you, if you designed it right, you change your portfolio when your circumstances change. You know, assuming someone's done the right things to set their portfolio up in the first place. We can come back to that. But 
you really shouldn't need to do much right? other than monitor your contributions or your distributions, depending on your phase of life, and update the allocations when your circumstances change. In terms of monitoring your balance and seeing how things are going, this is tough. I would say, I, I tend to think that for most people, if they were to just look once a year and make sure nothing weird has happened, they're probably in pretty good shape. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if they've done the homework, if they've done the right things in the first place, worked with someone or put together a coherent asset allocation plan to start. The big thing is it's not about the markets. Because we know, like, if, if you've put together like the smartest portfolio in the world that is truly diversified and is set up correctly, there's always going to be something in there that looks really dumb. And there's going to be a few things that look really good. But if you've done the work to make sure that you're allocated properly, it's not that those asset classes that underperformed and those funds that you chose to represent those asset classes are bad. It's that it wasn't their time and their time will mm-hmm. come. So you don't want to, you don't want to put yourself in a position of moving things in and out based on short term performance anyway. We do, we do believe in rebalancing, but for most people that we talk to that are just investing on their own, most of their, portfolio is in their 401k, right? Or their, yep. their retirement account. So if they're contributing to it monthly, their allocation's probably not going to get that out of whack anyway. I mean, if one, if, if, if you're, if you're investing in say just a stock fund and a bond fund and you're putting $500 into each every month and one's going up and one's going down for a certain period of time, those contributions are going to kind of rebalance things automatically in a way. Right. Right. Unless things get really screwed. We go in with our fancy schmancy portfolio management software and we rebalance every quarter and we rebalance when people make contributions or distributions. But by and large, for most people, that's not going to even really be necessary. You know, it's it's one of those things where I'll tell you how I do it and, and how I view my portfolio. In, and it is usually, you know, maybe... It's it's less than, you know, maybe two times a year. And sometimes I'm mm-hmm. usually only in there because I'm like looking something up for somebody else. Like, how do I, you know, how do I go into this app and do something? So I go into my own personal stuff. I'm not necessarily looking at right. my portfolio. Yeah. I'm just trying to figure like out how, how I use a part of an different app. Different IRAs, right? different custodians. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I use it more for like on a, from a psychological perspective, like if I'm having a bad day in terms of like looking in, in terms of money and, and, and how that, how it's, how I'm feeling about my own personal situation, there are times when I will go in there, especially if the market's up and just look at, okay, look, you know, we had a good, you know, we made X amount of dollars in our portfolio. That makes me feel, feel pretty good. All of a sudden I'm feeling better about our overall mm-hmm. financial situation. Right. Mm-hmm. Or, um, so obviously avoid doing that in down markets because you don't want to make, <laughs> you know, check what yeah. the stock market has done in the last six months yeah. before you actually look at your portfolio. But I, you know, it's it's funny. And, and this goes back to something that Morgan Housel said. Oftentimes we stress over like making a purchasing decision or something along mm-hmm. those lines. Like, and that really has no impact on, you know, our long-term goals or things like that. And so I right. like to be able to go in there and look at things like my total term score, what the overall portfolio is, because it helps center and remind me that, 
yes, we can do this thing. You know, it's not that big a deal if we spent more than we thought we were, because look at, you know, we're still doing all the right things. And sometimes by checking my portfolio, it makes me feel better about the little stuff that I swept too often. I think a lot of people lose sight of the fact that, particularly when you're starting out, mm-hmm. you know, we, we may be a little too old for this to be sound advice. But take take your take your average twenty five or thirty year old. They they may obsess over the funds and the stock market movement. But you know if you're just starting out in that four hundred one k plan and your denominator is zero, who cares what the return is? Right. You know <laughs> if you're putting four hundred bucks in every month, your your contribution is going to add up way faster than anything the market can give you or right. the market can take away. So from that point of view, when you're hearing bad stuff going on in the market, yeah, open up your portfolio and remind yourself that I'm doing the behaviors of putting that money in there every month. And that's going to make the bigger difference. So, yeah. I mean, if you're young like that, you really, you should be praying that the market goes down. That you, you should. I, I haven't convinced anyone <laughs> to actually do that, but yeah. Yeah. You should be celebrating you know. the, the market going down. Yeah. Like, that's a we've, really good thing for you in uh, the long term. We've talked about that. I've yet to find anybody who feel, you know, any 25 or 30 year old who likes to see minus 10% and think about yeah. the fact that it's just like going to TJ Maxx to buy right. a coat instead of uh, Nordstrom's. We're going anyway. to have to put that in our app too, right? Like in Robin Hood, when you do a trade, there's like confetti that comes down. We'll, oh, we'll, yeah, we'll yeah, do yeah. confetti yeah. when the market's Yay. down, like a certain Yay. percentage. Yeah. Congratulations. Your next contribution is going to buy this many more shares. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so the big thing is, again, though, with all of that advice is focusing on the behaviors. Did I allocate my portfolio properly? Yes. Right. Then it doesn't matter what the balance is. Right. Uh, you know, if you're not adding regularly or you want some structure around rebalancing, you know, if you did it once or twice a year, that's probably good. Each fund that you have, you assign a percentage. If it's if you've got a stock fund and a bond fund, and they're both, you know, maybe you're 75% in stock and 25% in bonds, rebalance back to those targets once twice a year if, if you're yeah. if you need to. And you don't need to do it if they're not perfect. Do it when they're three, four percent out of whack. It's not magic, but the discipline is what's important. You know, I completely agree. And you know, I, I think one thing, Dave, that I'll I'll pose the question to you, and, and I think people think about this a lot. Like when you're thinking and you're going into retirement, like at what point do you want to look at your portfolio and start adjusting it? because those circumstances are changing, because you're getting closer Mm -hmm. to retirement. There's other factors that feed into that, you know, and, and that liquid term idea. It's hard to say, you know, blanket advice wise, but what we want to see is that folks are going to have a couple years worth of income, whether that's in their retirement accounts or outside of retirement accounts that is in safer assets as they move into retirement. And, you know, we kind of set that glide path up, right? Where, you know, at some point in middle age, you're going from being almost 100% stock to being, you know, we we usually end up with most of our retirees somewhere around 60%, depending on their risk tolerance and what their plan will allow. Again, there's no one size fits all, but uh, as you know, but that that falls into that 
grouping of, okay, life is changing, you know, so yeah, once absolutely. a year, once a year, you know, if, if you're doing this yourself, maybe you're, you set a plan that once a year, you're going to go in from age 50 to 60 and reduce your stock holdings by a certain percentage. And you just mm-hmm. do it automatically and you don't do it based on what the market's doing. You just do it. Yeah. I mean, you're so right. Cause it's everybody's situation is different, right? Like there's no hard and fast rule and not everybody's going to be using money from their portfolio the day they retire. Right. Some people will have other sources of income. Some people won't. So there's a big difference there in how you right. allocate risk. But I think also, I, I love your point about like, just when you get however many years away where it makes sense for your situation, you're going in every year and you're making that adjustment. You're thinking about it. doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to, but you mm-hmm. start thinking about that stuff, start having those conversations. And that's yeah. this is another reason why it's hard to do it on your own because if you're having those conversations with yourself, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. It's a difficult, like there's, because there's no hard and fast rule, you know, there's a lot of factors you need to look at. It's hard to do that kind of stuff on your own. Yeah. But, you know, if you have an advisor that you're working with, I usually tell people, you know, 10 years out, it's probably worth starting to have those conversations about what that looks like and what your mm-hmm. glide path should be. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily saying that you're going to do something 10 years out, but at least you're going to yeah. have that conversation to decide, yes, we're going to do this or no, we're not going to, but you yeah. need to start having that conversation, right? One of the um, insurance companies that held themselves out as retirement planners, so I'll leave them unnamed, but I like their ad campaign. Um, it was maybe five or six years ago. They talked. They called it the retirement red zone, mm-hmm. and it was like I think. It, I think they literally went ten years before and ten years after. Right. You know, those are the times when with when you need to be paying attention to your asset allocation and how that glide path looks. You know, and that's we don't need to go into that too far right now. But essentially, you've got to be the most cautious right around. Awesome. Well, this has been fun. Hopefully uh, it has been helpful. Would love to hear from our listeners. If you have a metric or a ratio that you pay attention to, shoot us it at info at srbadvisors.com. But as always, Dave, this has been great. Appreciate your time, my friends. You bet. Good stuff. Thanks, Nick. Gather around and follow the Kitchen Table Finance Podcast to learn about money and simple ways you can invest right now. You can find more practical advice at srbadvisors.com and contact the team for personal planning by emailing info at srbadvisors.com.